0: You're listening to the Lovely Preschool Teachers Podcast, the podcast for quick, actionable ideas and tips to help you up your confidence and joy in educating little learners. I'm your host, Ashley Rives. Let's get to the show. Hey there, welcome back to the Lovely Preschool Teachers Podcast. You're listening to Episode 71, What Student Behaviors Are Telling You. This episode is the third in a five-part series on classroom management. If you've missed some of the previous episodes, go ahead and head back to episodes 69 and 70. This series will continue on for two weeks after this episode, so I'm hoping that you will continue to join me. Now let's get into it. So I am not a psychologist. I do not have a degree in psychology or any sort of behavioral science, but I am a really firm believer that all behavior is a form of communication. And when I frame it like that, it makes it easier for me to take in what the students in my classroom and their behaviors are telling me. At the beginning of my teaching career, I found myself really taking student behaviors personally it almost felt like, why are you making this so hard on me? I'm just trying, you know, to be the best teacher that I can be. And many times, you know I framed it on myself. And I think a lot of that was because I was in my early 20s, but also because I really hadn't done a lot of work around behaviors in the classroom because we were given tools as new teachers of what to do with behavior. and none of it was looking deeper than the behavior itself. It wasn't until I had my own children and started to watch some children in my home where I really became interested in why some of these behaviors were happening and pushing aside that idea that they are just trying to make me mad. And I now do not believe that they are doing things just with the intention of making my day bad. Sometimes it feels like it, but the truth is children aren't born bad kids. They aren't born with the intention of just wrecking our day. Children learn through their own experiences and modeling of others on how to behave. And sometimes we know what we would like to see out of children, but we aren't always great about communicating that out and making those expectations clear. And when those expectations aren't met, many times it's the behavior itself that is looked at and addressed rather than the underlying cause. So for example, when I first started my teaching journey in first grade, we had a program where if children, you know, broke the rules or misbehaved or whatever you want to call it, they would go to a safe place to calm down, but then they had to write out this paper. It had them own the behavior and reflect on what they would do the next time. And so really it was just owning that top level behavior of what we were seeing. It really wasn't going deeper into why am I doing this in the first place? And it lacked giving children tools on how to not let it happen again. Many times they're not wanting to go to this safe place. They're not wanting to have to go through all of this, but they don't know a better way. And so it just keeps happening. So we just keep repeating the cycle And if children can't find a better way, now I know it's my job to find a better way. So let's talk about how we can look at modifying student behavior in one of two ways. Is it a missing skill or is it a behavior problem? Let's first take the example of hitting. In early education, we see this a lot. Traditionally, when we look at a behavior of hitting, we see it as a behavior problem. Maybe we could have them sit out or go to timeout for hitting. We might try telling them that hitting hurts and asking if they like being hit. And we could keep doing this in hopes that maybe they will learn that it's not okay to hit another person. We most likely will get frustrated and say things like, how many times have I told you not to hit? Do you want that child to hit you back? And other things that we know later after we reflect, really weren't that helpful. But it was set out of frustration because we don't know how else to make it stop because what we're doing isn't working. And if you can relate, know that this was totally me too. I just wanted the behavior to stop. I wanted to find a way for it to stop. And I was really only focusing on the behavior itself. It took me a couple years of a journey to really really change my own mindset. And that's where it finally started to click for me was what I'm doing with the child isn't working. So I'm going to take back control of that and I'm going to flip the script. And now I look at behaviors with a different lens, a lens of, okay, hmm, something's going on here. What is The missing skill? What's the thing that they don't know how to do that is causing them to hit? The why. And once I took that step back and really looked at things through a totally different lens, I started to see the answer. So, as far as hitting, I'm looking at what's happening before the hitting happens. I know that hitting often happens around this time. What is going on? Or it only happens during free play. Making some real observations of when and where and who can really kind of help start guiding you down the path of what what is really going on here. So then you start seeing, oh my goodness, maybe another child knocked down their tower. And so now they're frustrated and they don't know how to handle that type of situation without lashing out physically. So there's a missing skill. I need to help them learn how to handle frustration. So maybe I'm going to help them with a calm down bucket of when you feel that feeling coming on, here's some things that you can try. And it's not going to fix the behavior the first time. It's going to take practice, just like all the other skills we teach our children. But it's a starting point. It's a starting point of, oh, now I know the problem. And now I can look for different solutions to try to help you and guide you to a better way, so that the hitting stops. And in turn, you you don't have those peers wanting to stay far, far away from you, which obviously can, can become isolating. So traditionally, maybe I would have just said, okay, you're you're done. go sit down, you're hitting, And a big fit would ensue, and then, you know, all the other children are noticing that this child is having a problem. And naturally, they want to distance themselves because they don't want to be hit. So they want to distance themselves from this child. So they all are isolating that child. And they're struggling to make friends and have those peer relationships because of this missing skill that's in the way. And until we address that missing skill, they're not going to be able to move forward. Here's another example that goes along with hitting because obviously just because they're frustrated isn't the answer every time. It's going to be different answers with different kids. So we had one friend that was constantly hitting people outside. This only happened outside. It only happened while they're running around and they, this child would come up and just whack another one. So at first I'm like, whoa, 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 like, what are you doing? Because that's just, normally we see it out of frustration, normally we see it out of anger. And this was more just like, I'm just going to whack them and run. And what I noticed as I'm observing this is, okay, he's whacking them and then looking at their reaction and trying to get them to chase him. So this one was pretty easy. I automatically is like, whoa, he just wants to play with them. He has no idea how to ask them. He thinks that hitting them will at least get their attention, which he's correct, and that they will want to chase him, which is what he wanted, because he wanted to play with them. But the part that he was missing was they don't want to be hit, so therefore they don't want to chase you. And if they do chase you, it's out of anger, and they're not going to want to play with you again. So he's missing those important pieces. And so that's where I get to step in and really help him understand that, oh, you want to play with them. Let me show you how you can do that. And so I can model that. Walk up to a friend, tap them on the shoulder, ask them, can I play with you? Talk about what we can play. All those different things that we can teach them. That was a missing skill. I could have just sat him out over and over again for randomly hitting children but it wouldn't have helped him because he he didn't even realize, I don't think, that what he was doing was making his friends not want to be around him. I think he just saw it as a way of, they will at least look at me. So this particular guy really got the hang of it and was able to stop hitting for attention. But then came another problem. He was incredibly rough when he played so rough that it was turning a lot of friends off. And what I know about this child is he is an only child, but he lives in a neighborhood where he plays with a lot of older boys. So I, with that information, I'm saying, okay, well, this may be the only way that he knows how to play. It may not have even dawned on this child that other people don't want to play like that because all the experiences that he's had so far is that this is how you play. So I really just talked to him and and talked to him about some people like to play rough and tumble. Some people do not. Some people want to play, you know, quieter games or sit in the sandbox. Others want to run and tumble and do all these things. So maybe you could try asking the person you want to play with how they like to play. Like, what is their, what is their play style? And I throw this word out and then I immediately realize, oh, he's not going <laughs> to follow what i'm saying this is like a you know educational word not a kid friendly word and so i go on to explain how he can ask them how they'd like to play so that he wasn't being too rough and and hurting them and making them not want to play with him so he goes on his merry way starts running around and i'm you know keeping a close eye on him and He comes up to a child and says, do you want to play with me? So he met that, you know, first thing we were working on. So, of course, inside of me, like, I'm just cheering. And then I hear him say, I like to play rough. What's your play style? Totally caught me off guard because here I am thinking that that verbiage just went over his head. But he obviously got it. And the other child, of course, is looking at him like, huh? But he got it. He finally got it. And I was just so excited for him because he understood how to get a friend's attention appropriately. And so the hitting stopped because he learned a different way. He didn't need to hit. He was figuring out this better way that worked better. And the friends were, you know, obviously better receptive to. And that skill that he just learned is going to serve him for the rest of his life. Another example is sitting at the carpet. I know you've seen it, (laughs) children rolling around the carpet, totally unengaged, you're getting frustrated, things aren't working the way that you had planned, you have this lesson plan, and you really want to work through it, and the children just aren't cooperating. And so that leads you to frustration and wondering, you know, why they can't just sit still. Well, that is a good question. Why can't they? Because the rolling on the carpet is the behavior That we're seeing. But what is that underlying why? And it could be multiple things, because obviously, if multiple children are doing this, then it could be multiple things. Could it be as simple as you haven't taught them what you expect of them at the carpet? Maybe having a visual of sitting choices could help alleviate some of that. Maybe not for everyone, but for many of the here are your choices and make them what is comfortable for you, but also thinking about what might be comfortable for them. Maybe that student is just overwhelmed at the moment. There's so many kids at the carpet, and there's just so much going on, and they need their own little space. Maybe you have one child in your class that you're looking at going, oh my goodness, every time we come to carpet, it's just the same thing of rolling around and just really being a huge distraction Maybe that's their way of tuning everything around them out because it's too much. And how can we give them their own little space? So for one friend in a different class, we brainstormed and thought, okay, what about, a, what about a laundry basket? This is his special laundry basket. Everyone got a turn to try out the laundry basket. And what they found was that it wasn't that exciting. They'd sat in a laundry basket or a box before they got to try it out. And they learned that this particular child in their class needed it to help him feel safe. When you explain things to children in a way that says they just need this to be feel happier, they don't really question because they want that feeling too. So we, we implemented that. And that helped so much because it felt like his own space. He knew where the boundaries were. And it was cozy in there. Or maybe... You have a whole bunch of children rolling around on the carpet. They haven't built up that stamina stamina yet, and they don't have that self-control to sit. That is slowly built up over time, and maybe your expectations of how long they can sit is a bit off. And maybe you've had the same expectations year after year, but this year is different. Well, then we have to change because obviously our children are changing and there's a lot of environmental reasons for all of that that we can't change, but we can change our own expectations and we can really work slowly towards the goal rather than expect, you know, perfection from day one. So is there a problem with your schedule? Are you having them get up and get wiggles out in them, you know, after five minutes? Are you building those things in? What? can you do to help support obviously their wiggly bodies? So again, just looking at it with a different lens, instead of getting frustrated at, oh my gosh, they cannot sit, switch it to, wow, they're wiggly, what can I do to help them? Our last example is around following directions. It's another huge behavior often seen in classrooms is not following directions. And many times, you know, we get frustrated and we're like, kids, just don't listen. And sometimes that can definitely be the truth. And it feels like they don't want to do what they've been asked. We have to go back and really question, do they know what we want? I found that me personally, I was horrible at expressing my expectations to children. Horrible at it. I had it in my brain of what I thought they should do. And I thought they should come in knowing that because, you know, they're humans and somebody should have taught them. But the reality was, is that they weren't. And that fell on my shoulders. And while it felt like a lot in, you know, addition to the academic things we're already doing, if you really stop and think about it, if I would teach it in the academic realm, why can't I teach it? in the social emotional realm. Teaching is teaching. Teaching is helping children learn something they didn't know before. So are you being specific enough when you're giving these directions? Sometimes generalized directions, it's hard for them to follow, or maybe they're not fully understanding what you're saying. Can you break it down step by step? Can you add some visuals in there? Can you make procedure cards where they can follow it? Because we know that children learn in multiple different ways. And when we're giving directions, it's usually only verbally. And so they're just hearing it. But what if they could see the progression of your instructions or even make movements to them? We have a movement for backpack and for lunchbox, because sometimes when I say, go get your backpack and your lunchbox, by the time they get to the place where the backpack and lunchbox are, They've forgotten what they were supposed to do because there's lots of children moving and mulling around and and you're expecting them to hear it once, go do it immediately. And even for us, sometimes that's hard. Oh, what was I doing again? You know, often find myself saying that. And so coupling the auditory with some visual and even some kinesthetic with a movement can really help them follow those directions. So looking at it as Oh, you just don't ever listen to am I providing the supports that you need to be able to follow through with what I wanted you to do? Or let's say it's cleanup time and you always have at least one or two children who just refuse to clean up. They're like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to ignore you and keep doing what I'm doing. Obviously, we see this as not following directions, not listening. It can be frustrating because it's really them showing their independence of I'm not doing what you say. Maybe we look a little bit deeper and say, okay, but why aren't they wanting to clean up? Most of the time it's because they don't want to stop. Sometimes it's because it's way too overwhelming for them and they don't know where to start. Oftentimes they've built something amazing and you're asking them just to absolutely wreck it, which I know if any of us have worked on a project that has taken us a while and that we're proud of, it's hard to just wreck it. So how can we support some of those reasons why they're not wanting to clean up? If they've created something amazing, can you take a picture of it? Can you save it? Can you, you know, put their name next to it and save it up on a shelf for the next time? Can you help them when it comes to about time to clean up? So maybe you walked over to them and say, "It's almost time to clean up. I wanted you to know that the, you know, we're going to be ringing the cleanup bell." So start wrapping up, start you know, finishing what you're doing here. I don't want it to surprise you. Maybe even just that will help a little bit ease that transition for them. Or maybe you're saying clean up and that is so broad to them because they've maybe never done it. What does that mean? You're asking me to clean up, but there is a lot on the floor and a lot of kids and I don't know what you want me to do. Could you hand them a bucket and say, please go pick up all the cars? go on a car hunt and look for all the cars. That specific instruction really helps them go, oh, well, that's doable. And sometimes the behaviors that we're seeing behind not following directions is because children don't have a lot of say-so over what they get to do during the day at school or at home. They're children, so many times they are told what to do the majority of their lives. And if they aren't feeling trusting of that person and not understanding really why they need to do this thing, it can cause some children to go, well, I'm just not doing it. That independent spirit, that fiery self comes out and they try to go, no, not going to do that. And so I definitely kind of bucked the idea of, because I said so, even though, you know, that was like my mother's go-to. Because I said so doesn't explain to them why it's important. So, if there is an important why behind it, I explain it because once they kind of understand that why, then they're more willing to buy into it. Well, I'm asking you not to run in the classroom because there's lots of kids and lots of tables, and you may hurt yourself or hurt someone else, and it's my job to keep you safe, and I don't want to see anyone hurt. That is giving them a little bit of a why, so then they can maybe buy into the fact of okay, yeah, I don't want to get hurt or I don't want to get someone else hurt. Does it always work? Not always, but it can help aid in helping children understand why you're asking them to do this. And it doesn't feel so controlled. And so the teacher said, the teacher said, it helps them better understand why we do the things that we do in the world around us because we're all living in it together, Another thing that I think just really helps with this whole idea of I'm not going to do what you said is having that relationship. If you stop and think about your previous educators, your previous teachers you've had, or even maybe bosses that you've had, and you think about who really resonated with you, who you really liked, what teachers really lit you up inside you're probably going to find that it was the teachers that saw you for you. Because when we're seen, we really feel safe and we can start trusting. And that trust of, I know this person wants the best for me, is also felt with our children. And when we give them that, when we see them for who they are, when we really treat them with respect, just like we would another adult, they feel that and they no longer want to disappoint. And the same goes with us, right? If we are working for someone who we know is counting on us and we know knows that we can do it and cares for us, the last thing we want to do is let that person down. And it's the same thing with our children. They don't want to let us down because they know we care for them so deeply. So relationships is a huge, huge part of what I try to do in my classroom and building those relationships with students because I wanna see them for them. I want them to know that I accept them for them and that I am their cheerleader. And if I don't have that in place and they feel like I'm always frustrated at them because they are just making my day hard That's not going to make them want to do anything to please me. That is not going to make them want to make me happy. It may actually do the opposite. It may get frustrated with me and think, well, what's the point? She's always on me. She doesn't care about me. And they may not be thinking these things, you know, real purposefully, but there's something going on there where they go, "Mm, she doesn't like me and I know it. They do totally get it. They know when we are their cheerleader and when we love them. They know it. So that's an important piece of it that relationship. When we look at addressing student behaviors the traditional way, we're generally just looking at that top layer of behavior and not diving down any deeper into the why. And the result of just looking at that behavior is generally some form of punishment in one way or another. The problem with that is that children aren't learning a different way to get their needs met. And so a cycle forms. First, you get the undesirable behavior. Second, you try to dole out a punishment and then you repeat it, right? It's just undesirable behavior. Get a punishment. Oh, it's happening again. Repeat. But when we take time to look deeper and find the why, we see that behavior truly is a form of communication. They're telling us, I don't got this, and I need help figuring it out. Of course, they're never going to verbalize that, but their behavior is communicating that. So now instead of that, undesirable cycle of behavior punishment repeat, we can now go deeper and say, why is this happening? Let me help you find a different way and practice that different way. Because when we're behavior detectives, we really are helping children solve a problem that can benefit them for the rest of their lives. The episode you just listened to was episode three in a five-part behavior management series. If you missed last week, head back to episode 70 to listen to Beware of Classroom Rewards. And if you missed the first episode in this series, take a listen to episode 69 for my realization of the honest truth of behavior charts. Next week, we'll be discussing how we can go beyond just managing behaviors, and I hope you will join me. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with a friend. This helps me spread the word and help more preschool teachers just like you. Keep being lovely.